Welcome to the Pastor Nick Santo podcast, a podcast designed to help you live closer to Jesus. We hope that God uses it to encourage and empower you in his plan for your life. Now let's get into today's content. We are in Ecclesiastes 11. Um, Kind of a strange study tonight. It's kind of maybe going to feel a little bit more like a TED Talk than a Bible study, and you'll understand why as we get into the content, but I'm so thankful that um, God really does address every single area of our lives, even things that we expect or sometimes think that He doesn't maybe care about or that are kind of consequential and just we have to kind of figure our own way through it but God has things to say about everything and so tonight he's going to talk to us about uh, money about investing about uh, that part of our lives so interesting what God has to say um, as we come to it but you'll see that there's there's some good application here uh, and it does apply in the bigger picture as well so interesting things why don't we just pray and we'll ask God to bless uh, as we get into the word so Lord we we know that you're here and Um, And we trust you, Lord, that you're going to speak to us tonight. And we uh, believe that you've given us everything that we need for life and godliness through him that has called us to glory and virtue. And so uh, we're asking, Lord, that your presence would guide us through this passage, that you would help us, Lord, as we uh, um, make decisions for our future, as we think about how to do these things in a way that best glorifies you. We pray that you would apply it in our individual circumstances, that you would challenge us, you would also teach us, Lord, and, and I pray for everyone here, Father, that, uh, that we would find ourselves uh, not just provided for and not just surviving, but we'd find ourselves prospering in every way. And we also pray, Lord, tonight that as we look at these things, that you would protect us from being consumed with the material, that you would protect us from being over-concerned with worldly things, and that you would help us to keep our eyes fixed on heaven. So uh, would you bless this time in your word tonight? We thank you for speaking to us so clearly. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's read from verse 1. It says, Cast your bread upon the waters, for you shall find it after many days. Give a portion to seven and also to eight, for you know not what evil shall be upon the earth. If the clouds be full of rain, they empty themselves upon the earth. And if the tree fall toward the south or toward the north, in the place where the tree falls, there shall it be. He that observes the wind shall not sow, and he that regards the clouds shall not reap. As you know not what is the way of the spirit, nor how the bones do grow in the womb of her that is with child, even so you know not the works of God who makes all. So in the morning sow your seed, and in the evening withhold not your hand, for you know not whither shall prosper, either this or that, or whether they both shall be alike good. Truly the light is sweet, and a pleasant thing it is for the eyes to behold the sun. But if a man live many years and rejoice in them all, Yet let him remember the days of darkness, for they shall be many. All that comes is vanity. Rejoice, O young man, in thy youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth, and walk in the ways of your heart and in the sight of your eyes. But know that for all these things God will bring you into judgment. Therefore remove sorrow from your heart, and put away evil from your flesh, for childhood and youth are vanity. So uh, just about a month ago, I think it was on, um, on or around December 19th, that Wednesday night, we had a, a study, and it was called, um, you know, The Truth About Wealth, and we talked about the money trap and how, uh, um, you know, having money in too high of a regard can be a danger for the Christian, and, and there were four things that we looked at in that study. I know a lot's happened in a month. It feels like it was a lot longer time ago than that, but there, essentially, we saw four things that money promises 
as though it could speak or as though it were alive. But there's four uh, kind of promises that money gives to its possessor or to its seeker, but that it cannot fulfill. And we saw those in the text, and we feel those every day in our lives. First of all, satisfaction. Money promises that if we have it, we'll be satisfied. But it doesn't matter how much you have, you always kind of just want a little bit more. It also promises freedom, that the person who has freedom will some, or money will somehow also with that have some level of freedom. And although that can be true in particular areas, uh, money is not what gives humanity its freedom. If anything, there's the potential for it to bind up. Uh, money also promises an abundant life, that the more you have, the more you'll be able to experience. You know, um, It's a promise, but it's not a promise that money delivers upon. And then finally, we saw that it promises peace of mind, that if we have a bunch of money, then we'll be able to rest at night because we're not worried about where the money's going to come from. And the problem, of course, being with that is that the more you have, the more you have to take care of what you have, and you end up losing the peace of mind that you were trying to gain when you were seeking after wealth in the first place. And so money makes these promises, but it can't produce the things that it promises. And so we saw that to live for money really is kind of a waste of time and a waste of life because it can't do what it promises. And at the end of the day, you can't take it with you. Everything that we gain one day we give back and we leave the world with as much as or less than uh, we came in with, you know. And so uh, we can't take it with us. However, we do understand also that though we can't take it with us, we can use it while we're here. And it is a consequential part of our existence that we have to deal with this uh, issue of money. Now, in the biblical context, God is absolutely aware of that. God is the Lord over those things. And so his decree to you and I is that the proper place or relationship that you and I are to have with money is that it is not to master us, but rather we are supposed to master it. We are not to become servants to our money or to money, but rather we're to keep our money in the place of being a servant unto us. Now, isn't it kind of an interesting thing that can happen? I don't know if this happens to you. But the things that we have in our lives that are intended to serve us, somehow, subtly over time, we become servants to those things. They're supposed to be making our life easier, but somehow we become slaves to those very things. And it happens, doesn't it? You know, anyone who's had something break down and now all of a sudden you have to drop everything and fix it or whatever, uh, you know, we all feel that from time to time. And money's no different. It's a great servant, but it's a horrible master. And so we're not to live for money. We're not to make it our objective, but it is a consequential part of our life and we're to be stewards over the money. Now, Paul would write to Timothy in the New Testament in 1 Timothy chapter 6, I think it's uh, verse, what is it, verse 9, I think it'll come up on the screen, but he said this, he said that the love of money is the root of all evil. Now, maybe you've heard it said that, that money is the root of all evil. No, it doesn't say that, that's not true. Money is not good or evil, money is indifferent. But when you couple money and human love, now you have a recipe for all sorts of evil. And the love of money is kind of the root, it says, of all evil. Very interesting thing. And so we understand that we're not to love money. 
but we're also not called to hate money. Money is not our enemy, but we are called, the Bible tells us, in fact, Jesus tells us that we're to be friends with money. There's an interesting passage in Luke's gospel. It's in chapter uh, 16, where Jesus is giving the uh, kind of a story about an unjust steward, someone who was a manager over a rich man's wealth, and he was accused of mismanaging the money that was laid at his care. And so the Lord, or the rich man, calls his steward to give an account of what he'd been doing with the money, and kind of sees some corruption or something and and fires him, says, you're going to lose this position. And so what the man does is he immediately goes out to the people that owed money to the rich man, and he said, how much do you owe? And one said, well, I owe, uh, you know, 100 barrels of oil or something. And he said, well, quickly write down, sit down and pay him 50 today, right now, and we'll call it even. And so the guy said, hey, all right, 50 cents on it, I'll do it, you know. And then there was another guy that owed him a certain amount of something else. He said, cut it in half, pay it now, and you can be free. And he did it, and he was put out of the stewardship, and this was just a parable Jesus was telling, but then he said, Jesus did, in, in chapter 16, verse 9 of Luke's gospel, he says, by way of application to you and me, he says, make friends to yourselves of the mammon or money of unrighteousness, or that is just the money of the world, so that when you fail, they may receive you into everlasting habitations. In other words, learn how money works in such a way that you can use it to your advantage when hard times come. And that was instruction that came right from Jesus. So we don't love it. We don't hate it. We make friends with it. We keep it in its proper place so that it can serve us in our time of need. And God has ordained human economy and the presence of money and working for a wage in order that we might provide for ourselves, provide honestly in the sight of all men, and that we might have that opportunity. And so what Solomon gives to us here tonight is not the exhortation that he did back in chapter 5, where he said, hey, beware of the money trap, But now he's actually going to take the other side of it and say, here's how you can use money in a way that you can set yourself up well. You can set yourself up rightly. And so he's going to give us his advice. And so the chapter basically breaks down like this. He gives us two commands, and then he gives us four principles, and then he gives us one command and then a call. So two commands, four principles, one command, And one call. I know that's not very impressive. It didn't impress me either, but I'm letting you know where I'm going. And so he begins by giving us the command, the first one in verse uh, verse 1 of chapter 11. He says, cast your bread upon the waters, for you shall find it after many days. Now, the context through which he is speaking here is not the bread that you have in the bread basket of your house, but he's talking about what you and I might speak uh, in kind of urban language of our dough. He's talking about your money. He's talking about your substance. And what he's calling us to do is to cast it out into the waters or basically to put it out in investment in the sea, the vast sea of economic pooling wealth for the sake of seeing it come back to you with a greater return later on. Now, it's kind of interesting because by using this parable or this analogy of bread being thrown into water, 
he is in a sense addressing the counterintuitiveness of investing. I mean, because in a sense, when you invest, when you put your money out there for it to be invested, you're relinquishing control of it. And in a sense, it almost feels like taking perfectly good, useful bread and throwing it out of a boat and into a lake. And if you were to do that, you wouldn't expect that you would ever see that piece of bread again. And even if you could grab it one minute later, it would be of very little use to you. I mean, it would get soggy, it would very quickly get either broken up or eaten up or absorbed or dissolved, and you would think, well, that was a waste, that was gone. And sometimes the idea of investing almost feels like that. I'm letting go of control of something of value that's in my hand, and I'm hoping that somehow I'm going to get it back, but it seems to me that that might not actually happen. No one does that. But Solomon is saying, do it. It's counterintuitive, but you will, in fact, get it back. There's going to be return on it in time. Now, what's the flip side of it? What if I decided that I wanted to hang on to the bread, that I don't want to invest, I don't want to put it out there? Well, what happens to bread that I can't eat today because I can only eat so much, and so this is extra bread, and I don't eat it, and so I keep it for some time later down the road? Well, the fate of that bread is going to be even worse in the sense that it's just going to get moldy, or it's going to go stale, or it's going to be completely ruined or eaten of mice, and then it'll be of no value at all if I hold on to it. Now, what does Jesus say on this regard? We look at the New Testament and we hear him talking about treasures that we store up or hoard for ourselves here on earth. And what does Jesus say about it? He says that moths and rust eat it or corrupt it or thieves break through and they steal it. Like Jesus said that that's going to be what happens to anything that we try to store up or hold on to too tightly. It's going to be wasted, ruined, or rotten in some way by what this world's decaying processes are. We read also that Jesus said, it's Matthew chapter 25 later on, when he talks about the, the stewards that were given talents. Some were given 10, some were given 5, some were given 2. And he praised those stewards that invested what they had in order to see a return on it. Now, of course, the context primarily there is spiritual. We understand that the idea or the concept of investing our resources is something that comes from God. And so what Solomon is saying here is that, listen, if you want to be a good steward of what you've got, take a portion of it that you can and put it out as investment money because you will see a return on that later on don't be afraid to let it out there it's going to come back to you so that's the first command the second command is given in verse two and he says this he says give a portion to seven and also to eight for you know not what evil will be upon the earth now what he's essentially saying there is the same thing our mothers used to tell us when we were kids and they would say don't put all your eggs where In one basket, right? In other words, he's saying, listen, don't put it all in one place, but diversify in the sense of spread it out a little bit because you don't know there is risk involved and some things are going to succeed and some things are going to fail and there's no way for you to know which is going to be which. And so put it out there in a way that if something goes bad, at least not everything goes bad. Now, when we look at Solomon and we say, well, Solomon, can you give me an example? What did you do in your life? We can look at Solomon and we can see that this is exactly what he did. He was a man of excessive wealth. 
and he didn't sit on his wealth. He took the overage that he didn't need for his daily life, and he invested in a lot of different things. His primary investment was in the temple of God. He put more into the house of God than he did into anything else. He saw that as a priority, not just for himself, but for his kingdom and for the people and for the world and for the glory of God. So he saw investing in spiritual things as a worthy place to put his money. Secondarily, he invested in people. And when I say that, you look at Solomon and what he did is he was always on the lookout to understand what people's talents were, what their gifts were, and then he invested in them relationally, and he contributed into their life and built them up so that they could also be an advantage to him, not in a selfish way, but in the sense of advancing the cause to which or for which he was called. And so he was a man who saw the importance of investing in people in whatever way that he could, and he built a strong kingdom because of it. He recognized talent, and then he put that talent to its proper use. He was also a man who invested in real estate. That was important to him. He saw the value of it and building it up and and making places more valuable, and he did it, and he saw a return on it. He was a man who invested in importing and exporting. He made it kind of a thing that he would send away for spices, for fabrics, for precious stones. He would bring them into Israel, and he advanced Israel nationally, their economy. He enriched himself also through the trade uh, investments that he made. He invested in his own education. We read in the account of his life that he was fascinated with sciences. He was fascinated with the study of trees and of fish and of politics. And he just gave himself to constantly making himself sharper, making himself wiser, making himself better. He saw it as a worthy investment to invest in his education. He invested in cities and in the military. That made sense for him. He was a king, and so he would strengthen himself his people, his nation, and his cause by making investments in the things that would strengthen uh, that part of his life. And he was also one who invested in currencies. He knew how to trade currencies. He would take the currencies from places in Africa, other parts of the Middle East. He would bring them into Israel. He would turn them into proper currency there. And he was just a wise man, and he knew how to invest, and he knew how to diversify And thus he was constantly uh, growing. And so when he tells us to give a portion to seven, even to eight, we can look at him as an example of how he took an excess of what he had and he spread it around. I want to pause just for a second here. And I want to tell you how uncomfortable it is for me to be talking about this with you. Because Pee Wee Herman would do much more value to the bodybuilding community by giving a talk on bodybuilding than I can do to you in giving you a talk about investing. I am a moron when it comes to these types of things. I'm the guy that on my wedding day, I got married. My wife and I, we had a total combined income of $300 and, not the income, net worth of $300 and a Ford Taurus. It was like 1987 or something like that held together with zip ties. And we didn't have jobs, either one of us, on our wedding day. I mean, talk about not being prepared and not knowing how to plan. That's what we did. Our first year of marriage, our our gross income was $12,000. Our second year of marriage, it was $14,000. Now, God, by his grace, and it's nothing but his grace, 
has carried us through and we have survived without ever missing a meal or a bill. And, and that's not the position that we're in 19 years into our marriage today. Now, we're by no means wealthy or any wiser. Well, okay, we're a little wiser than we were back in those early days. But we're certainly not in any position where we are financial counselors or that you should come to us and ask, well, hey, talk to me more about this whole thing. Listen, I'm learning with you right now the value of the things that Solomon is saying uh, to us, and certainly he has something to say. Now, having said that and given you the disclaimer that I don't know what I'm talking about, People that are wiser than me in this arena tell us that a good goal to have is that the top 10% of our income, that goes to God. Now, that's not law. That's not something that we're required to do. We're in a New Testament season of grace. However, how does the kingdom of God keep moving? It's by the generosity and the offerings of the people of God. And that tithe or that 10% is something that God upholds that he promises that if we're faithful to trust him with the tithe, that he will be faithful to make sure that we have what we need when our time comes. And I can tell you, not knowing much about money over the years, that God has been faithful in that for us. So they say 10% is for that. Then after that, between 5 and 20% should be saved for the sake of investing. So you save what you can so that when it comes around that that has accrued enough that you can invest it in something and you can use it then to make a little bit more. Also, they say that it's wise to have between three and six months of cash reserves in case you lose a job, in case of a tragedy, in case something happens that you need to be able to supply in an emergency for a short-term period of time. And that you should then, the last 70%, be able to live on. That's your expenses, your bills, your mortgage, your, you know, whatever else that you have uh, in, in that whole thing. Now, that's a good goal. It's something to strive for. And maybe say, Lord, help me in my context to arrange things in such a way that I can steward what you've given me and then, then I'll have to give and I'll have also to be able to invest to set up for my future. I do know that the Holy Spirit is attracted to and that he rewards good stewardship and good discipline. And so those are the two commands, invest and diversify. Now he gives us four principles to encourage us in this endeavor. He tells us in verse 3, here's the first principle, is that if the clouds are full of rain, then they will empty themselves upon the earth. What's the first principle? It's that we live on a wet planet. We live on a wet planet meaning that there is a vast sea of water. In fact, there are seven of them. I don't know where they draw those lines or how, but there are seven of them. And that there are systems in place to grab that water and bring it to different places and drop it randomly where it needs to go so that the earth can bring forth. It's a wet planet. Now, in the context of economy, what Solomon is saying is, listen, there is a lot of money that is going around in circulation. And at different times and in different ways, it is going to drop on the earth. There are ways of gathering what is in circulation. It's a wet planet. Now, the amount of water is incalculable, but there are systems to disperse it around. Same with money. 
The amount of wealth that's in the planet is incalculable, but there are systems in place to spread it around. Now, what's amazing to, to, to consider is that the wealthiest people are not the ones that have the deepest cisterns. In other words, the ones that have the most cash or the most in their bank account. The wealthiest people in the world are the ones that have the best irrigation systems, meaning they have systems in place that they are channels of money. Water is moving through. Water is moving around. And they have these different ways of doing it. And what Solomon is saying here is, listen, it's going to rain, and you just need to have a system in place so that when it rains, you can gather of the water that comes. The second principle is given in the second half of verse 3. And he says this. He says that if the tree falls towards the south or towards the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will be. In other words, part two, yes, it's going to rain. But number two, you don't know exactly where. Just like a tree falls, you don't know which direction is that tree going to fall. Where is the rain going to fall? I don't know exactly where it's going to fall. But here's what I do know. That's what Solomon's saying is that if you don't have any seed in the ground, then it's not going to help you even when the rain falls. If you don't have seed in the ground, then the rain will profit you nothing. The dirt will do its work, but you've got to have seed in the ground. I, I'm not an investing man by just basically providence. haven't ever been able to do that. But I remember a time about 10 years ago, I was working out in the gym. It was right after the crash of 2008. And everything kind of tanked and everything went south. And, oh, every, you know, everything was just nuts at that time. And I remember there was a guy at the gym, and I knew him. I'd seen him on a couple jobs. And he, he said to me, he said, do you invest in the stock market? And I said, no, my, my dad did, and I don't really want to do that. And, 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 and so he was like, well, he's like, I'm not really either. He goes, but I'm thinking I'm going to buy Citibank. And I go, why? And he goes, well, it's under a dollar a share. You know, and this whole bank thing, and the banks have crashed, and, you know, it's under a dollar a share. I mean, you invest a couple hundred bucks, you get a couple hundred shares, and, I mean, is Citibank really going to go away? And I was just like, huh, interesting. I don't care. You know, and I kind of went on with my life, you know. And I called my dad. He was the stock worker. And I said, Dad, I talked to this guy, and I wanted to sound smart and have something to talk about. And so I said, Dad, what do you think about Citibank? And he said, oh, you know, we get into this whole conversation, you know. And, uh, and, of course, I didn't have any money to invest anyways. I did nothing with it. Well, I checked the, the price of Citibank yesterday, and it's somewhere in the middle 60s, $60 a share right now. Okay, so let's just say, let's just say I had $1,000 that I could have put into that at that time then. If I had done that, that $1,000 today would be worth about six, what would it be, like, Thank you. 60,000. Hey, that's a pretty good return, right? If I had 10,000, that's 650,000. I mean, there's there. But if there's no seed in the ground, then you can't get anything for it. My dad tells a story about a neighbor that he had growing up where they were so poor that this man's wife would go around and steal milk off other people's porches when the milk, they used to do the milk trucks in those days. And, uh, and what happened is that this, this guy inherited, uh, through the death of a family member, he inherited $500, which in 1950 or so, that was a lot of money. That was a good chunk of change. And it was not long after Xerox had gone public as a company, and he took the entire $500 and he invested it in Xerox. And within a couple of years, he became a millionaire. 
You know, and he, he loves to tell that story, you know, and it was something that he told us as kids and he's trying to teach us how to be stewards and wise and everything. But here's the point is that, listen, if you have seed in the ground, when the rain falls, you can benefit from that. And that's what he's saying here uh, on things. So the next um, principle that he gives is in verse four. He says that he that observes the wind will not sow and he that regards the clouds will not reap. And here's the point, principle number three, is that if you try to predict the trends and the cycles and the movements of things, you're likely to fall prey to the analysis paralysis and you'll probably do nothing. In other words, if you try to figure out how everything's going to work out, it's probably not going to go very well for you. And then principle number four is given to us in verse five. As an addendum, he said, as you know not what is the way of the spirit, nor how the bones do grow in the womb of her that is with child, even so you do not know the works of God who makes it all. Principle number four is this, is that you don't have to know how it works. You just have to know that it works. And you have to be willing to put it out there. And when you invest and sow, you will reap. And this is a part of human economy and a part of how things works. And our older brother Solomon is seeking to lay this on us and encourage us uh, for the sake of our own good. And so in light of two commands and four principles, he now gives us the final command in verse six. He says this, in the morning, sow your seed and in the evening, withhold not your hand, for you know not which shall prosper, either this or that, or whether they shall both be alike good. The command is this. Whatever you do, be diligent to do it. Be diligent. In other words, don't hold back. Don't withhold. Don't waste the opportunities that you have to be fruitful and to produce or be productive in your life. Take advantage of every moment. Don't sit still. My daughter and I were having a discussion over, uh, um, uh, I'll call it a political commentator who was in a debate with people of the opposite uh, persuasion politically. And um, the, the man with the microphone was talking about um, being in the United States of America and having the advantages that we have in our country and the opportunities that we have in our country to make something of ourselves. And in fact, the greatness of America is basically the, the byproduct of the opportunity that every person has here. And one of the people that were debating what this man was saying was talking about suppression uh, racism, oppression, that there are certain people that will never get ahead because of their race or because they're, they're not given opportunity or they're blocked from having opportunities and, and that it isn't equal. Not everybody can. And, and so the, 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 the man with the microphone, and I'm being very careful not to offend anybody, so, you know, it doesn't, this is just discussion, you know. The man with the microphone said, listen, here's the bottom line. He said, if you live in the United States of America all your life and you come to the age of 70 and you have been below the poverty line for 70 years of your life in the United States of America, that is not an indication that you have been suppressed or you didn't have opportunity. That is solely an indication that you're not good at money. He said, that's the bottom line. And then there was like this gasp, like, you're in red. He said, no, 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 no. He said, listen. He goes, this is the United States of America. And you can do whatever you want. I remember, you know, I, I, I'm 
I'm an American fully, okay? And, and that is good and it's bad. But the bad thing is that I grew up thinking that the world owed me something because I was an American. I didn't know that I thought that, but I think that's just kind of like part of being an American. And I know we kind of like, we kind of um, get on millennials and we say that they have this like entitlement thing. Listen, everyone, everyone has an entitlement thing. Remember, remember, remember Peter or, or James and John? Remember they hired their mother to go to Jesus and ask, hey, Jesus, would you do whatever, we, whatever I ask of you? And he's like, what are you up to? And they're like, would you please grant that my sons sit on your right hand and on your left? Listen, entitlement was, the apostles had an entitlement complex. Everyone has this sense inside that, that the world owes me something. Well, I had that. I'm an American. I've thought, you know, hey, everybody should just give me something, you know. Did somebody just say amen? <laughs> so I remember when, when I woke up. I remember when I realized that that's not the way it works in the world. Uh, and it happened on a job. I was building a house down in Yonkers, and um, there was this guy that pulled up, and he... He was Guatemalan, and that doesn't matter, but that's just what it was. And he, he came and he just said, hey, do you guys need help today? Can I work on your crew? And so the foreman said, yeah, sure, why not? We'll pay you for the day. And so he worked that day, and then he became a part of the crew. He's a real good guy, and he was a real good worker. He kept to himself. He was quiet. He was reliable. He worked hard. And so one day we were all sitting around having lunch, and somehow he came about to tell his story. And he said, well, I came to this country about five or six years ago, and he said, the, the, the second day that I was in this country, I enrolled in school to learn English. I didn't know a word of English on the day I arrived. And so he learned English. He, he, he basically was responsible for educating himself. And he went to work at night cleaning offices for a cleaning company somewhere down in lower Westchester. Well, he was so good at what he was doing. He was working so hard. And he made uh, acquaintance and then friends with the owner of the, the cleaning company that after a couple years of doing it, the man wanting now to downsize said, hey, would you like to buy half the business? And so he did it. He bought a truck. He bought a couple of machines. And he took over half of the accounts. He then turned that into two trucks, a bunch more machines, and double the amount of accounts but he was only working at night because you can't clean offices during the day. So he pulled up on our job site and said, I've got all this free time. Can I work with you guys during the day? And so now he's building during the day. He's cleaning at night. The guy's got a booming business. And he's telling us all about this. And then he looked at us and he said, anyone in this country that isn't doing well for themselves ought to be ashamed. And I was sitting there going like, oh, my goodness. I am being lectured by a foreigner about wasting the opportunity that I have to do what he's doing that I feel like I shouldn't have to do because I live here. Shame on us. And here's what Solomon is saying to you and I. He's saying, listen, be diligent. Recognize the privileges and the opportunities that we have and make the most of them. Let's not be consumers. Let's be contributors. And in the process, we become tributaries. We become irrigation systems. And, and in the process, we get to skim some of it off the top and enjoy our lives a little bit. Now, this isn't prosperity preaching. This is just making friends to ourselves of the mammon of unrighteousness. Now, in all of that, we have the warning given to us by God. Listen, don't get consumed with making money. Because it's a lie and you'll end up wasting your life. But be diligent with the opportunities that you have. Make the most of them. And in the process, you'll set yourselves up in a good way. And so he gives us uh, this call. 
Now, in verses 7 through 10, uh, this is true for all of life. As we finish off this chapter, he says this. He says, truly the light is sweet, and a pleasant thing it is for the eyes to behold the sun. Listen, what he's saying here is essentially this. He's saying, listen, there are good elements to this life that's been given to us by God. I love the fact that he's saying this here because, I mean, this really kind of has been a little bit of a depressing and dismal letter thus far, hasn't it? I mean, everything's been vanity and vexation, and he's looking for the purpose of life under the sun. And he comes to this place now as he's drawing closer to the close, and he's saying, listen, not everything that happens or every experience that we have in this life is all darkness. There is sweetness in the life that God has allowed us to have, and it's a pleasant thing for the eyes to behold the sun. But if a man live many years and rejoice in them all, yet let him remember the days of darkness, for they shall be many, for all that comes is vanity. Listen, for all of the enjoyments that this life affords, there are going to be times that are difficult and times that are hard, and don't let the dark days tarnish the light, is what he's saying. And then he gives this call at the end. He says, Rejoice, O young man, in your youth. And let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth and walk in the ways of your heart and in the sight of your eyes. But know this, that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. Here's what Solomon's saying. He's wrapping his arms around us as though we were the graduated high school student that's about to go off to college and be on our own for the first time. He's saying, listen, you're going to be on your own and there's a lot to experience in this life and there's a lot of good things. And I want you to go and I want you to enjoy everything that this life has to give you. But remember, there's a test at the end. There are finals at the end. And that for everything that you do, you will give an account. Therefore, he says, verse 10, remove sorrow from your heart and put away evil from your flesh for childhood and youth are vanity. Here's the call. He says, first of all, this life is not a dress rehearsal. This is the performance. Live it. Live the life that you can live. Go out and do something with what you've been given. Take the time, talents, and opportunity that you have and go find joy in this life. Find it. It's out there. Remove the sorrow from your heart. If you're in a situation that is dragging you to nothing, you have the ability and the freedom by the grace of God to get out of that situation or to pray yourself through that situation. But you don't have to stay in it. Remove sorrow from your heart and also remove evil from your flesh. Understand that if you choose to live a life of iniquity and a life of sin and constant self-indulgence, that's going to bring you down. It's going to kill you ultimately because the wages of sin is death and it's going to rob from you. And here's what Solomon is saying. Here's the call at the end of all of this advice that he gives to us. He's saying, listen, don't fear life. Live life in the fear of God. Live it. This is your chance. Live. But live in the fear of the Lord. And so he finishes this chapter, uh, an interesting text. There's a, there's a verse, as we come to the close, there's a verse in, um, it's in 2 Peter chapter 1, and it's in verse 3. And it says there that God has given to us everything that we need for life and godliness, that he's given us it all. And so even this study that seems so uh, kind of out there, it seems kind of strange, God has given us everything that we need, and so he gives us this advice as well. 
There, there is a secondary application to this. Bread in the Bible, seed in the Bible, also carries with it the context of the Word of God. Jesus said that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Other places, the word is likened unto the seed that is sown, the sower. And one of the investment opportunities that you and I have as a believer is that we have been given this loaf. We've been given this word, the living word that God calls it. And we can take the word that God has given to us and we can invest it with the promise that we're going to receive a reaping on the other side of the investment that we make with the word of God. In Isaiah chapter 55, verse 10, the prophet Isaiah says an amazing thing. He says that as the rain comes down and the snow from heaven and it waters the earth so that it might give bread to the eater and seed to the sower, Isaiah says this, so shall my word be, says the Lord, that comes forth out of my mouth. It shall not, and here's the promise, it shall not return to me empty, but it will accomplish that which I please, and it will prosper in the thing whereunto I sent it. In other words, we have a promise from God that his word is alive, and that as we sow forth the word of God, there's going to be a spiritual return upon that investment. And so every opportunity that we have to sow the word of God into our lives, into our hearts, into different elements and parts of our character, God promises he's going to cause that seed to germinate and bring forth a harvest tenfold or sixtyfold or a hundredfold of what we sowed in at the beginning. Every opportunity that we take to sow the word of God into the life of someone else to sow it into the life of our spouse, to share the word in our marriage, or to share the word with our kids. That word's not going to return void. It's going to do something in their life, and it's going to produce something spiritual, eternal, and lasting in them. We have the opportunity to share with the people that we live alongside, the people that we work alongside. And as we take the seed, the bread of the word, and cast it out upon the waters, we might not be able to see how it's working in the sea of someone's thoughts, but we have the promise from God that he's going to do something with it. And in due time, the dirt will do its work, the soil of the soul. And the seed of the word will spring forth. And it will bring forth salvation. It will bring forth righteousness. And so aside from everything else in the practical, we understand that the spiritual is just as applicable, the opportunity that we have. And so I invite you with me to stand as we take now what God has spoken to us tonight. And as we ask him to apply it to our individual lives, both in the practical and also in the spiritual, that we might be wise stewards of what he's given and that we might reap what it is that we sow. And so, Father, as we are here and gathered and looking at this, Father, we, we thank you, Lord, that you teach us all things. And we're asking you, Lord, that you would help us both in the practical and in the spiritual. And that, Lord, in ways perhaps where we have squandered the opportunity that we have or squandered the time or we've taken a sense of entitlement in some way, we pray that you would help us, Lord. That you would teach us, Father, to, like you, make the most of what's in front of us. We pray that, Lord, you'd help us. I pray for everyone here that you would bless them in their economic things, their financial things more so, Lord, I pray that you would bless us in our spiritual things. 
that you would take the seed of your word, that you would make it live inside of us, in our families, in our marriages, in our kids, in our relationships, in the kind of people that we become, in the way that we represent you. Lord, we ask that you would make us real and sincere. And we thank you, Lord, for these things. As odd as they are, oh Lord, we're grateful for them. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Thanks for joining us for the Pastor Nick Santo podcast. To regularly receive these teachings, be sure to subscribe so that you can get it automatically when it's released. If you find this material helpful, please share it and help us get the message of Jesus out to others. We also appreciate your feedback. So if you would, leave a review in iTunes or email us at pastor.nickpc at gmail.com. Until next time, may you continue to love, learn, and live the way of Jesus.